This summer, Katie and Christine and I are preaching the sermon series called Two Minority Reports from the Hebrew Bible about the slim books there, Ruth and Jonah. Today we're beginning our look at the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it and preach repentance. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish in order to flee from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each cried to his own God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship to lighten the load. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and lain down and went to sleep. The captain came to Jonah and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Call upon your God. Perhaps that God will spare us so that we don't perish. The sailors said one to another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has fallen upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea might quiet for us? He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down. For I know it's because of me that this great storm has come upon you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its surging. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you were a Jew from Warsaw in 1943 and had lost your entire family at Auschwitz, how would you like to preach hope at Hitler's headquarters in Berlin? If you lost your husband at the Twin Towers on 9-11, how would you like to pre preach grace to Al-Qaeda? If your high school senior son was killed in his classroom by a gunman with an AR-15, how would you like to plead for mercy in that courtroom? That is exactly the mission Jonah is asked to carry out in the book which bears his name. And he just doesn't, he plain doesn't want to do it. So here's what's happening. God gives Jonah a triple imperative. Arise, go, preach. Preach good news to Nineveh. So in the 8th century before Jesus, that's when Jonah lived, in the 8th century before Jesus, there was one global superpower, Assyria, and Nineveh was its most important city. Assyria is in present-day Iraq. It's right here. Nineveh is up there across, from the, across the Tigris from the present-day city of Mosul. Assyria was a vicious and cruel superpower bully in the 8th century before Jesus. Assyria created more chaos and malice than Draco Malfoy at Hogwarts. And Jonah just doesn't want to preach good news to these desperados. 
So in response to God's triple imperative of arise, go, and preach, Jonah responds with a triple indicative. Arise, flee, and sleep. He hails a taxi for the nearby port city of Joppa and gets on a boat going west, way west, to Tarshish, in fact. Now God wants Jonah to go about 500 miles northeast to Nineveh. And instead, Jonah gets on a boat going 2,500 miles to Tarshish. This is not a subtle gesture. Jonah is telling God to take a hike because Tarshish is the end of the world so far as the ancient Hebrews knew. They didn't know about America and Canada and Brazil and Greenland. They might not even have known about England and Ireland. Tarshish is literally the end of the world. It's at the edge of the map. You can't go farther west than Tarshish. Out there is only dragons and the abyss. I love this map which superimposes the Mediterranean basin on a map of the United States. So if Jonah is down here in Jaffa, Charleston, God wants him to go 500 miles north to Boston, Nineveh. Instead, Jonah books the first nonstop to L.A., 2,500 miles west. This is not a subtle gesture. Jonah tweets with all caps and many exclamation points and exploding head emojis. But here's where the story gets interesting. God follows. I'm not sure this is good news or bad, but that's the point of these four sermons about Jonah, the inescapability of God. The British poet Francis Thompson famously called the deity the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven. This bloodhound won't quit till he trees his coon. Story's a minor masterpiece. It's only 48 verses and 1,100 words long or shorter than this sermon, but it's God's gift to us. God says, arise, go, preach. Jonah responds, arise, flee, sleep. Takes that boat to Tarshish across the mammoth, mercurial Mediterranean, and as soon as he gets there, he goes down in the hold and falls promptly asleep like a baby. Meanwhile, there's this, this terrifying tempest that roils the ship and threatens to swamp Jonah and the innocent sailors who are transporting their rebellious human cargo to its wrongful destination. And when a throw of the dice fingers Jonah as the reason for God's implacable wrath, Jonah has a momentary, fleeting stab of conscience. Throughout this whole story, Jonah will reveal himself to be unscrupulous and monumentally self-absorbed, but right here he has a brief stab of conscience and agrees to take a dive for the skipper to save all these innocent lives from certain destruction in the deep blue sea. And then, famously, before Jonah has a chance to flounder around long in the towering billows, a ginormous fish swallows him whole. And while I don't think you'd want to say that he was safe and sound and warm and dry, at least he's not drowned. That's something. God gives him three days and three nights to think about the error of his ways in the belly of the fish. But then even the fish finds Jonah to be nauseating, so she vomits him up on dry land. It's a distasteful and violent image, but I think it gets its point across. Well, all this myth, all this legend, all these children's bedtime stories, what's the point? 
How is this God's word for us? I'm glad you asked. The great Hebrew Bible scholar Philip Tribble says, even as Jonah flees from the presence of Yahweh, that presence surrounds him. Jonah's flight is futile, she says. Jonah's flight is futile. God's presence surrounds Jonah, besieges Jonah, swallows Jonah up quite literally. And so do you see how God will bend the muscular powers of all nature itself to impose God's will on us? The hostile storm, the loaded dice, the convenient fish, even the dry land, God has endless stratagems to get us to do what God wants us to do. Sometimes God can seem like Tommy Lee Jones to our Harrison Ford in that great old film, The Fugitive. God's love doesn't disappear just because we don't want it. God's grace doesn't collapse just because we fail to attend to it. God doesn't give up on us just because we give up on God. When storms rage, God is there. When the dice seem loaded against us, God is there. When beasts encircle, God is there. Does anybody here feel like Jonah in the belly of that fish in a dark and hopeless place? And yet, it's just in that dark and hopeless place that Jonah experiences God's undeniable nearness. Jonah hears God's call, God's inescapable call. Now, you might try to flee from the call of God, but you can't escape it. I didn't want to be a preacher. I wanted to be an accountant, like my dad was. God gives me this triple imperative, arise, go, and preach, and I respond with a triple indicative, arise, flee, and sleep. I tried to one in the opposite direction. That didn't go so well for me. Mark Twain said the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. <laughs> Actually, Mark Twain didn't say that, probably. I can't think of anything less like Mark Twain. But you see my point. Still wise, right? The two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Does anybody remember the teenage tennis star Andrea Yeager from a few years ago? She's actually from Skokie. She was the best tennis player at Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire. In 1979, when she was 14 years old, she turned pro. In 1981, at the age of 16, she was ranked number two in the world. ESPN described her as a prodigy in pigtails and braces. In 1983, at 17, she reached the Wimbledon finals. And in 1987, at the age of 19, she retired from tennis. She burned out. Have you ever heard of a 19-year-old retiree before? Now, Andrea Yeager is a devout Christian. In fact, she is an Anglican nun. Can you believe that? I didn't even know the Episcopalians had nuns. But she is an Anglican Dominican nun. A while back, she started this place called Silver Lining Ranch outside Aspen for seriously ill children. They would go there for a week to ride horses and whitewater rafts and to play tennis. Most of them didn't seem to know that their host had been a global tennis star not long before that. The original 12 children, many, many years ago, were all from Chicago. 
And this all started, Silver Lining Ranch, started when Andrea was still playing tennis. She impulsively one day brought a bunch of toys to the cancer ward at the Helen Hayes Hospital in West Haverstraw, New York. And 20 years later, she still remembered the way that day made her feel. She said, they made me feel like Santa Claus. I went to bring them gifts, but I was the one that had been given to. There was a little boy with stubs for hands who wanted to play video games with me, and a little girl who was dancing with her IV pole, and another one who wanted me to rub her bald head. That little visit changed the course of Andrea's life. She says, I loved the game of tennis, but the whole world of tennis became surreal to me once I met those children. When I was 14, I had all these hordes of adults running around like my servants. They'd put just the right candy that I liked in the locker rooms. And now these kids are 14 years old and thinking about dying. That puts having a bad day in perspective, she says. She gets a phone call from one of her former campers. Julia is calling to say goodbye. She's talking fast and sounding rushed because she's planning her own funeral. She's picking out the clothes she wants to be buried in and the music she wants played. And she's calling to ask Andrea for a photograph of her from her time at the camp. Andrea says, Julia was 14 years old. When I was 14 years old, my most important decisions were what to order from room service at five-star hotels. She says, you never know if you have, to, even if you don't have cancer, you never know if you have tomorrow. I wanted these kids to have life while they were alive in a place that, where people wouldn't isolate them because they were different. She gets another phone call from a former camper. This girl's calling not to say goodbye, but hello. She too is sounding rushed and talking fast because she's planning her wedding. She's calling Andrea to ask if she can spend part of her honeymoon at Silver Lining Ranch because she wants her new husband to see the place that saved her for him seven years prior, saved her life when she needed to know that she was not alone. All of this started with that little visit to that hospital, that little girl pushing an IV pole and dancing with it. The two most important days of your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. God's pervasive Profound, prodigious, protective, persistent providence is plotting out your purpose, plan, and path. Now, go ahead and run away from it if you want to. Flee in the other direction 2,500 miles if you must. Let's see how that works out for you.